Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome once again to Football Belongs. I'm Richard Bayless. Just a reminder, the podcast and chapter are different to each other, so we recommend you listen and read to get the full experience, in whichever order suits you. For now, though, it's over to your host, David Davudovich. Thanks, Richard. And in this episode of the Football Belongs series, the game we unpack is... The 81-minute classic between the Coca-Cola Socceroos and AC Milan at Princes Park back in 1993. The theme? Cultural cringe. Our special guest today, South Melbourne National Soccer League great Paul Trimboli, who featured for the Socceroos on that infamous night, along with gun broadcaster and reporter Francis Leach, who was a rising star with Triple J back in 1993. And last but not least... None of us would be here without him. The series inspiration and author John Didelitzer, who was starring in his first full Victorian Premier League season for the North Geelong Warriors, where he bagged seven goals in 27 games, if you don't mind. And later in this episode, we will discuss how cultural cringe played a part in Ange Postacoglu's shock 2017 Socceroos exit and the synergies between him and former Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating. Why Paul Trimboli is Australian football's version of Forrest Gump. And the synergies between local football and Australian cinema. John Didlitzer, CEO of W Sports and Media and former Australian Football Players Union Chief, FFA Legal Counsel and Melbourne City Football Director. I'll start with you. Now, cultural cringe. What is it and how does it relate to this Socceroos AC Milan match? Thanks, David. I'm incredibly excited hearing Paul Trimboli's tales from that vivid 80-hour pit stop from AC Milan. So... Likewise. Look forward to um but in terms of framing this, I you know, cultural cringe is something I think that runs through our entire cultural and political zeitgeist uh, in Australia. And I think at its core it's about downgrading our products and achievements in comparison with those of other countries in a belief that we need to have them validated by overseas authorities. It's something of an inferiority complex um, it's about dismissing our own culture as inferior to other cultures. And I see it play out in movies in particular. I see it play out, play out in politics. But I think where it plays out really acutely is in Australian football. And we're going to discuss today how that played out in these international friendlies that the Australian national team would play against club sides, which is incredibly rare and unique in Australian football. I think it plays out in, in trimmers, case as a footballer who only played in Australia um, and how we value that contribution. And as you touched on, I think it really shaped Ange Postacoglu's reign as as the Socceroos boss during that four or five years he was at the helm. Yeah, we'll unpack all of those uh, throughout the podcast episode and we'll hear from Paul Trimboli in a second. But Francis Leach, I believe you were hosting three hours of power, (laughs) the late night heavy metal show at that time that John Didelitzer would undoubtedly have been tuning into. Now, what are your correct recollections of this match at Princess Park between 
An AC Milan side that had played in the UEFA Champions League final just two months earlier and the Socceroos. David, uh, John and Paul. Yeah, I went to the game. That's what I do remember. Uh, And uh, my distinct memory is walking up to Princess Park, which I'm familiar with going to as an Aussie Rules fan as well, on an early weeknight. Was it Tuesday night or Monday night or something like that? It was midweek. And just my first uh, impression were these rickety uh, temporary light stands that were were raised there that looked like that you might bring to the scene of a bad accident so that that the emergency services workers could do their job and thinking, oh, this is this doesn't bode well. <laughs> they look like they're on, uh, on on scissor frames that were just, you know, like searchlights poking out onto the ground and thinking, hmm, that's a bit low rent for the European <laughs> champions. Thought, what do they think of all of this? And, and it rightly turned out to be a really odd night. Uh, the first half cut short, everyone in the stand going, what's going on? Uh, the, the ground uh, in fairly embarrassing condition uh, because it was an Aussie rules ground with a cricket pitch in the middle of it, which I'm sure... In the midst of AFL season, season. mid-July. The top-class team from Italy, the champions of Italy, visiting us here at Princess Park in Melbourne for Match 2, a most unusual venue for uh, soccer, but uh, normally Australian rules and Australian football venue, of course. Which I'm sure our Italian guests must have looked at and gone, what are they asking us to do? And um, it was just one of those occasions where at that particular time in Australian football... You came to expect it in a way, which was, when I think back on it, a little bit sad. Uh, and getting to know uh, Trimmers and some of the players afterwards, uh, there's a lot to laugh about about what went on. But it's also a lot to be, I think, you know, retrospectively a little bit embarrassed about and somewhat angry that an opportunity like that was so badly handled and great players like Paul were put in a position they should never have been put in. But it was one to talk about forevermore because at that particular time, as, as young football fans, we were searching for opportunities to see these international teams. And I think a lot of people don't realise now that uh, in the age of instant communications and digital reach where you can just watch a replay from a Serie A game whenever you like or tune in and, and stream it live. Yep. This was like hunting it down. Like you didn't you didn't see these players unless you tuned into SBS. If you missed that, if you didn't video it, it's gone. Like you just don't know. <laughs> so to actually have this team come to Australia, it was a really rare opportunity uh, and just to have it happen in such a disappointing fashion, um, it, it made you realise that we had a long way to go. Mm. Paul Trimboli, uh, you did feature on that night. 46 Socceroos, 450 NSL matches. I'm not sure where this particular game ranks in your career highlights. Uh, there are a lot of hamstring strains that popped up for the Socceroos ahead of those games. What are your memories? Yeah, gentlemen, what a, a unique experience, I think, uh, to start with. It was a, it was an interesting year that year because I think it was at a time when the national team itself was changing to the degree that we had a number of players who were now starting to play in Europe. We also had the NSL and the home base squad, if you like. And then there were certain fixtures because obviously there was a World Cup year campaign. So they wanted everybody to get game time. They wanted to get fixtures as many as they could, but it was very rare that they had what they would consider probably the first 11 together. So I remember there was early in the season, early in the year, there was training camps in Holland and they played some friendlies you know, against club teams. And mm-hmm. I think we even went to Singapore and played against Kuwait a couple of times early in the in the year. Yep. And then we had the, the playoffs against New Zealand. And it was at the back of that. And it should have been the holidays for most players. So a lot of the guys who'd featured in the World Cup qualifiers decided they were going on holiday because they needed a break from the European season. And so then it was a case of, okay, how can they piece together a squad? So automatically 
they would look at the home base players and try to bring bring a squad together. But there was always a few guys who were in Europe who maybe hadn't been playing or maybe wanted to get their name back in the frame for selection. So they would put their hand up. So it was a bit of a, a mishmash of, of a squad. You know, you had your probably half a dozen guys who were always in there, which was like Djurakovic and Wade, Ivanovic, those sort of guys. And then you had the kind of emerging, because it was the time also when the Oli Roos were kind of becoming more prominent and having the same coach for both teams, there was a lot of blending of, of the squads. Yep. So it was a really interesting time just to be in the Socceroos. And I think after that came the Canada series and then into the Argentina series, but there was also another friendly, two friendlies in South Korea where we went with a home base squad in September. Cause I remember it coincided with the AFL grand final. And I remember thinking all these games, there doesn't seem to be much continuity of this whole program for the year. And all of a sudden, as you said, they threw AC Milan, the most famous club in the whole world, <laughs> into the mix. And, and I remember the first thing that, because it probably the good, the bad, and the comical, because the first thing we noticed was when they send you the information and they tell you this is when the camp's starting, this is when the game's are, this is what you got to bring. I saw that there was one game, I think it was on a Wednesday, and the next game was on a Thursday. And I said, that's got to be a typo. I said, the only time that happens is in the NBA. And I said, this is, this is not football. We Surely we can't be doing that. So then all in of a sudden, you, cities, you, know, you speak to Wade and you go, Wade, is that, am I seeing that right? Is that like two days in a row? And he goes, yeah, apparently they've got a really tight window and we're desperate to get him here and it's the only way we could do it. I said, oh, this would be interesting. So, you know, then we get up to Sydney and we, everyone starts coming and you're not too sure who's going to turn up. You know, you got a few guys from overseas, a few local guys. And, uh, and as the squad was starting to take shape, there was a few guys who were looking around and probably, you know, didn't particularly think we were going to be a strong matchup against the likes of AC Milan. So all of a sudden, you know, a few guys started feeling a few aches and pains and there was a couple of late withdrawals. Jimmy Patikas, who's not playing today, Jimmy, because of that bad knee, just explain that what happened here. That's a bit of a tragedy. Yeah, uh, as you know, I came and played a couple of guest games with Leichhardt. Um, the first game that I played, I twisted my knee and um, unluckily I wasn't fit enough to play tonight. And that probably leads to one of the bizarre, almost comical moments where Warren Spink, who is a great player, stalwart NSL, a lot of times for the national team, he was actually not in the squad and he was up in Newcastle because that's where he's playing his club football. And he tells the story that he was actually doing some tiling. He was doing his kitchen and bathroom with his old man. <laughs> and he was a real gym junkie. He was one of the original guys who's in semi-pro football was a pro. He didn't work another job. He just dedicated himself to football. And he... He said he punched out a whole heap of deadlifts and he'd done some car phrases and he'd been on the tools and doing the top. Then he gets a phone call saying, do you fancy a game against AC Milan? And he said, when is it? And they go, tonight. <laughs> Can Sydney. you get to the airport? And so he gets to the airport in Newcastle and he flies down to Sydney and he joins the team at the pre-match meal. And then before you know it, he's coming on at half time and playing. It looks like the same 11 for Australia. Although Warren Spink has stripped down, Warren Spink is out there. He answered an SOS call earlier today. Well, that's an interesting change already. And it's just like people don't believe you when you tell that kind of story. <laughs> do, do you mind coming up against Franco Baresi, <laughs> Alessandro Costa Curta, Roberto Donadoni? Unbelievable. Yeah, So, and it's those sort of stories when, like I think you said earlier, Francis, it's almost like, you don't know whether to feel embarrassed. You don't know whether to, uh, it's amusing anecdotes for people or it's just the state of where we're at. But uh, it's funny how different things from those two series just pop in your head in no sort of order. I remember we had a dinner. It was before the first game and it was both teams. And, and I remember the Milan players dressed 
immaculately, you know. They got the Prada suits and then the full thing. And they were so regimented. And I remember a couple of times the players obviously wanted something or wanted to do something. And Baresi would have to go up to the coach, Cabello, ask him, talk to him, then he'd come back and share the information. And we were sitting there going, mate, this is, you know, this is obviously professionalism. This is how it works, you know. And I remember a comment from Cabello, and I don't know where he was getting his reference from, but he, he made some comment that, he doesn't know much about the Australian players, but what he does know is they drink more beer in one night than his team would drink in a year. <laughs> and I thought... Oh, I must have heard the David Boone story. <laughs> so obviously you're thinking, okay, well, that's his reference to Australian football. Yeah. And the first game, it went relatively smoothly. I mean, we're at Sydney Football Stadium, proper football stadium. Decent crowd. crowd. I think it was maybe 35,000, 40,000. 40, it, yeah. it was good. Um you know, obviously they dominated the game. We didn't lose by too much, but uh, probably the standout moment of that game was at the end of the game when we were all excited. We're playing against guys who I think if you look forward 12 months, there's probably half a dozen at least mm-hmm. who played a World Cup final. Mm-hmm. And then the next year, I think they win the Champions League. So yeah. incredibly talented Yeah, team. and had lost the Champions League to Marseille exactly. only two So you're talking earlier. about guys who are at the top echelon who, you know, we watch these guys on the odd occasion where we can get the footage and you just marvel. These are the guys you almost aspire to, to play against and play with if you can. And so we're all excited. We're going to go swap shirts, tradition in football. What are the chances of ever getting one of these shirts again? No problem. So we're going there, we're swapping shirts. I just noticed Lentini and Alex Tobin swapping shirts there. Papan and Damien Murray. And Murray won't forget that day in a hurry. To be fair, they weren't that excited about it. They weren't thinking the same thing. They weren't thinking the same thing because, as we alluded to, we're wearing, because of the nature of the the games, it was a real commercial element to it because they were trying to maximise everything. So we had this Socceroo kit, which was like, it was like fluoro, almost yellow green, and it had big Coke sign on the front. Like it was the most blatant thing you've ever seen. And and the one thing we know about international football is that's a no-no. National teams don't have... Advertising, that's what's so beautiful about it, you know mm. what I mean? And in this instance, that's what we had. So no problem. So they looked at it and they said, yeah, 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 whatever, and then uh, gave us their shirts. So everyone was swapping. Someone got a Barese, someone did you got get a Donadoni. I had uh, Filippo Galli, who actually was sort of marking me in the game and spoke a bit of English, so we were actually having a chat. And then we were back inside, swapping stories, saying, how cool was that? Look at this. Going to show this to the boys. All of a sudden, the team manager comes in, and he's looking around, and he's saying, who told you you could go and swap shirts? <laughs> we're looking at, what are you talking about, mate? It's tradition. We always do it. When are we going to put, you know, when's this opportunity going to come? And he goes, we've only got one kit. Oh. It's the only kit we've got with the go-go. We need to wear it tomorrow night. <laughs> and we're saying, what? So we have to go back and ask for our shirts back so that we can wear them the following night. Oh, and there's been said, some low points in Australian sport, but that's got to be right up Ridiculous. There. And we said, they didn't want them in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> that's the episode. They, they only and took it because they were being nice. And it was a Patrick shirt. So the Socceroos <laughs> at the time were sponsored by Adidas, yet they were sponsored by Patrick for these two games. Yeah, it was just crazy. So in the end, we had to get our shirts back. We didn't get too much argument out of the <laughs> We said, if you, you want to go to the beach, yeah, say, hang on a second. You want yours back? And I said, no, no, you can keep that. No problem. They've got about 10 shirts. So that was the start of the, this is bizarre, this whole thing. And then obviously we had to get up the next morning, get on a plane, go down to Melbourne. And then obviously, as you already alluded to, the cricket pitch in the middle, the big oval. And then all of a sudden there was all the talk about they haven't sold enough tickets. They've got to get people through the gate. Then it's like with the, the AC Milan unhappy with the ground. Then there's timing issues. They've got to get on a plane. So all these things were swirling around before it even played. And I know there were some people who'd bought tickets, as you said, paid early, got in 
because I think one of the things also was when they sold the tickets, if you remember correctly, Milan, they had an incredible team that came, but probably three of their biggest names didn't come because Marco van Basten, Frank Reichardt and Paolo Maldini didn't come. Seems unfair to say, but I think the days of Hullet and Reichardt are finished. They are being, they're in dispute, their salaries have been cut, they are leaving the club. Milan are building for the future to be the, the top side in Europe, which they are to maintain that. And from their, their so-called starting lineup for the start of next year, there's only the injured Savicevic and Van Basten are missing. And so people had bought tickets thinking that they were going to be involved. So all of a sudden there was a little bit of angst that they didn't turn up. Then all of a sudden, because of the nature of the ground, people sitting in the front row, which they thought was pole position, they couldn't actually see because the advertising <laughs> audience to make money yeah. were blocking their view. Yeah. And then because they wanted to get people in, all of a sudden they sold discount tickets right next to the high price tickets. So people who bought them on the day for $15 were sitting right next to the person who paid $50, you know, three months earlier to get in first. So there was a lot of angst going on. And then the game the way no one could stand up. I'm not sure if you've seen the footage, but it was very difficult to play. And everyone was already knackered from the night before. So all these things, then the half time came early. Well, I've just calculated 36 minutes. 36 minutes on my watch. Nine minutes early, I would forget. Nine minutes early. Eddie Thompson doesn't know exactly what's going on. I don't think the fans will be too impressed about this, and hopefully we can find out exactly just why. The game has been pulled short nine minutes. It was one thing after another. It was almost like, what's next? It's, you know, there was cameras, but it was like candid camera. It was... You could barely see, I mean, from that footage, and there was a reason that the VFL or AFL at the time didn't play night matches at Princess Park, and they did play a lot of football. So... Things couldn't have gone to a better start uh, from a Soccer Australia viewpoint. Then 36 minutes into the first half, referee Gary Power blows. Jim Fraser. Jim John Fraser. Fraser. John, John Fraser. Apologies. And everyone started looking at their watch going, have I got this wrong? Uh, how come, is this like a shortened game? Did we ever get to the bottom of why? Has he ever spoken as to why he called in early? Or did he just yeah, get a tap I've on never, the shoulder? I've never heard anyone, you know, like come out years later and say the truth. But there were so <laughs> many rumours swirling around, even at half time. We're sitting around looking at each other going, what the hell's going on? And they were talking about one issue was the lighting because it was temporary. And there was always issues around that area with local residents because of uh, games being late and what time there was curfews and stuff. And they were saying that they need to turn the lights off at a certain time because- No one would have noticed if they turned the lights (laughs) off. It was already that dark. (laughs) Although I think in the coverage, someone made a mention that they would have still been able to see the Aussie players even if they had turned (laughs) them off because of the (laughs) Blu-ray. There's one thing for certain, John, if the lights go out here, we're- Certainly going to be able to see the Australian side. And then there was the story, the famous one about the Alitalia flight was taken off at this time and they had to be on it. So therefore they worked backwards from the check-in time. And then they said, no, nah, we've got to finish the game at this point. But, uh, but why have to cut short the first half? Yeah. And we heard in the commentary, Andy Pascalidis, Johnny <laughs> Warren breaking it down, absolutely baffled, as was Les Murray on the sidelines. But uh, Johnny Warren, the great... Uh, basically uh, broke all of them down and uh, debunked all of those theories. Thanks very much, Carl Viet. Let's go back to our commentators, Andy Pascalidis and Johnny Warren. Thank you, Les. And we have been trying to find out exactly why the match was stopped at the 36 minutes and 22 seconds into that first half. We've been informed by uh, our good friend Peter G from the ABC that there is a restriction to the lights around this area because we're surrounded by... For the local residents, and apparently those lights have to be shut off 
We're still trying to find out exactly whether it's 9.30 or 10 o'clock. Now, it's even, well, even if it, now. Even if it was 9.30, there's still time to play. Uh, one wonders whether John Fraser has made a mistake. I doubt it. Uh, if so, he should have been pulled up. The other theory, uh, Andy, is that uh, Milan have to get a flight. But uh, that flight, there is adequate time. One can only assume that... Uh, well, hopefully that it has been a mistake by the referee. And if it was a time constraint, the other the other angle is that the, the players have had 15 minutes for half-time. The obvious thing was to cut the half-time back, but hopefully we'll have uh, more correct information on that as uh, this half proceeds. We still haven't got to the bottom of it 17 years on. And I think the thing that you... And it's exactly what John's been talking about a lot of his writing is about... I think the probably one of the worst things about it at the end was no one really cared about mm. the Socceroos. It was all so focused on who we were playing against. Tonight it's a $127 million 11 up against the Socceroos. And as you can see them coming out to a good response here from what is predominantly a AC Milan crowd, as you would expect. I think that was a period when we probably didn't take that kind of real pride in, you know, it should have been, no, no, we're... We're going to show you how we play football. You're going to come here then, but it was all about the opposition. Yeah, yeah, it really was. I mean, I was there as a Socceroos fan because some of us were very keenly aware that it was a World Cup qualifying year and had been to the games against New Zealand and were looking forward to what was coming with Canada and then, of course, Argentina. But obviously, a lot of those, a lot of that time when you played, it was against even against international teams. Often, <laughs> the international support was stronger and louder than it was. For, for the Socceroos. I'm wondering, John, do, do you think that at that stage the Socceroos hadn't really established its wider identity with, with an Australian uh, community? Or, or where was it sitting beyond the football community? People still didn't, didn't know where to place the Socceroos as a national team. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. But if you go through, and look, a part of that was our inability to tell our story effectively. Because mm. if you look back in the rearview mirror now, so many there were so many landmark moments that the Socceroos had participated in prior to those games. So you had the great games against Scotland in 85, which were incredible. Mm. Uh, you had the 67 game that we've spoken about with the, the, the birth of the Socceroos, if you like, playing those games, forging a legend. You had the 74 World Cup that was, you know, if you go back and look at the literature of the time, that was a huge event. You know, it was so big that we built a National Soccer League off the back of it in 77. So we were developing um, a critical massive interest in the sport, but I, I don't think... You, I think it's right to say that we hadn't quite nailed exactly what the Socceroos meant to Australia. And I think that's still a challenge to this day. And I think that really came to the surface during the Postacogli years, where you had these conflicting views about what the Socceroos needed to be. On one hand, were they a team that were just a carriageway to get to the World Cup and be part of the show? Or were they meant to be something that was aggressively Australian and that captured the essence of who we wish to be as a people? And I think that's what Ange wanted for our teams. I, I don't think he wanted the Princess Park game in 93, you know, and that's where, that's where we were at the time. And I don't, I actually don't think we've broken through that yet, notwithstanding the great games that have happened since, whether it's 06. Um, Heartbreak of 97. Yeah. I, I still don't think we've broken through and found the right place for the Socceroos in our landscape. And what was really interesting about that, that came only four or five months after the FIFA Under-20 mm. World Cup, which was hosted by Australia, and was actually a really big tournament. Australia roll.
rolled out the carpet to the world in a spectacular opening ceremony that reflected this country's multicultural diversity. Yeah, can and I just say, at Triple J, we covered that extensively. That was huge for us. And my late great friend Damien Lovelock basically introduced himself to the Triple J audiences again. He, of course, he was a singer with the Celebrate Rifles, but he, as we all know from his time at SBS as well, a great football man. But we basically... Dog lover. Yeah. <laughs> we basically hired him to be our voice of that tournament, and it was fantastic. Mm. And, you know, the, the whole sort of Triple J community got right into it. And there were some great games. I think Martin Tyler basically started his... Introduced himself to Australian audiences by being out here as a commentator. And he was really easy to deal with and... It was just so much fun. And I think mm. our audience, which isn't a sports audience at the Triple J at the time, became one because, you know, this young tournament full of great footballers was here in our own backyard. It was it was a really important moment. Yeah. I, I think that this notion of self-consciousness wraps itself around the Australian teams in football. Mm. And I think we're incredibly self-conscious about the Milan game and just so eager to please. Let's do whatever they want. Let's acquiesce to whatever they want with no sense of who we are and what pride we have in ourselves. But then you flip it into a major tournament where there's an authentic platform where we're up against people on the same stage, we're hosting. There's a whole different sensibility to that, isn't there? Which is which is really difficult to unpack. And of course, only four months later, there was the famous World Cup qualifiers against Argentina when the great Diego Maradona is in town, was in town, which uh, yeah. kind of uh, melded all of those together. Um, Trimmers, we touched on the host of the touring games at that time. Um, I wanted to get your views on that in a moment, but just towards the end of that game, there was a bit of an issue with uh, yourself and then Soccer Australia Chiefs for uh, allegedly bringing the game into disrepute. Can you just uh, recap yeah, on was, that story? Uh, it was actually, I think, if I recall correctly, it was probably the next morning. I think we were staying at the Southern Cross, the old Southern Cross Hotel. In, Go for uh, a bowl. And, uh, and uh, you know, in the morning, because obviously I was from Melbourne, so I wasn't in any particular hurry to get the flight back to wherever I was from. And in those days, a lot of the journalists used to stay and almost travel with the team. I mean, I've got some funny stories about that being just an aside. I remember now they're talking about they'd love to play 11 against 11 to get a bit of match hit out. And I remember back then the squad was often only like 18 or 20 at the most. Mike Cockrell used to get yeah, a guarantee, didn't if there was a couple of injuries, then they'd you know, Mike Cockwell would be playing left back, <laughs> which was fine, but this is the national team. And the worst part about it was he wouldn't pass me the ball. <laughs> There's me trying to get myself noticed to get in the team, and Cockwell's bypassing me, looking Bobbing forward. on down. <laughs> you know, I, I, I love Cock as the late great, but uh, look, he wasn't the uh, most talented Sunday yeah. footballer, was he? So on the morning after, we're sort of in the lobby of the hotel, and, and because we knew these guys, we're just chatting, and, and I'm... At that stage, I'd been getting a lot of feedback from a lot of the people because I was in Melbourne. I knew a lot of people had been to the game. And they were telling me the stories about the seating. They're talking about the light we couldn't see, the, you know, the time of the game, all that. And so I was just sort of like we are talking about it saying, can you believe this? And what are they doing? I go, this is, this is not right. People have been ripped off here. People, this is, you know, I'm just sort of chatting about it. The next thing I know, it's in the media. And I'm getting a letter from FFA. I've never had a letter from uh, ASF at the time, never in my life, <laughs> apart from saying you're in the team or you're not. And all of a sudden, they're asking me for a please explain, and they're talking about possible sanctions for bringing the game into disrepute. <laughs> and I said, that wording alone, that I was bringing the game into disrepute after what we'd seen, was always comical in itself. But uh, yeah, funny enough, I was actually a bit worried and nervous about it because I thought... You know, they seem to be taking this quite seriously. And then I had to actually manage it properly. Otherwise, I could have been in a bit of trouble. Yeah, extraordinary. Um, We'll move on. This series does seek to explain the country Australia through nine themes and football matches. So we'll revisit the term cultural cringe. It was 
introduced in 1950 by Australian author A.A. A. Phillips in the context of Australian literature, but developed to lend itself to the broader cultural evolution in Australia. Now, John Didlitzer, you've identified the manifestation of cultural cringe throughout your essay, uh, which you can read on Optus Sport, um, linking it to cinema, politics and academia. Now, you wrote... The cringe was primarily characterised by the need to make needless comparisons, which were invariably to the English. Um, I guess you can remove literature and insert football and it's a carbon copy. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's consistent with the way we've managed all our other cultural pursuits. You know, movies is a really good case study as well, where you know, Aussie movies in our own minds succeed if they achieve one or two or both benchmarks. One is overseas audiences love them. And the second is it presents an idealised version of who we are as Australians. If an Aussie movie doesn't do that, it can really struggle to be successful. And there's a whole range of examples. One is that I, that I discuss in the essay is a movie called Babadook, which is a psychological thriller. Where do you get this? On the shelf. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. That made like 250 grand at the Aussie box office, goes overseas, makes tens of millions, and all of a sudden gets re released here and makes a stack load of cash in Australia. And everyone's, what a great movie this is. No one watched it when it first came out in Australia. Um, another one, which is arguably one of the great Australian movies of all time, is a movie called Waking Fright. My which, favourite Australian film. All yeah, time. it's an incredible movie. You to the Yabba? Yes. Staying long? Yeah, just tonight. Oh, that's hard luck. Um, came out in 1971. It came out a year before The Deliverance, which is um, a famous American movie, which discussed a very similar theme, which is around this clash of cultures between the urbane city dwellers and the rural residents of smaller towns. And those who have seen The Deliverance know it can be an incredibly challenging watch. And Waking Fright is not dissimilar to it in terms of sensibility. It presents a really ugly face to... Australian regional life or that Australian pub culture, that easygoing ochre that we all love, um, you know, is the actual inverse in this movie. We have this deranged, awful sensibility and Aussie audiences were reviled by it, notwithstanding the fact it was actually quite well received. Um, it's an extraordinary film if you've not seen it. And John writes about it in his essay that the it was lost for a long time. In fact, he couldn't dismissed. see it. On, yeah, More dismissed. so than lost, yeah, wasn't it? it was literally really, lost too. Yeah, like in, the, yeah. They rediscovered a reel of the film in someone's backyard or shed about mm. seven or eight years ago and restored it to its glory. After years of detective work, Tony Buckley tracked down a copy of the film lying forgotten in a Pittsburgh film vault, filed under its American title Outback. He found it just in time. There were 200 cans of negative and positive film of Wake and Fright marked for destruction. So we're very, very lucky. It was a very close shave. And it is beautifully shot. I mean, the, the scenes in the pub scenes in this film where he's playing two up, uh, it just yeah. they are brilliant. And it, it, once again, though, this film is very Australian, but it was made by Ted Chief, yeah. who, you know, sidebar, his other claim to fame? No. 
Weekend at Bernie's. Oh. <laughs> oh, he made both the weekend. He was the director of the Weekend at Bernie's franchise. Totally different end of the spectrum. Link that one back to Australian football. <laughs> oh, it's tough. <laughs> we played a few. Although I've got, I've got, a, I've got a few. I've got a few. I've got a few administrators. I'd like to think were Bernie-esque. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it took an outsider to, to make to give us that vision. In mm. the same way that Nicholas Rogue, the director, the English director who made uh, uh, Jetta, the other great film of the early fifties of uh, Aboriginal life in the outback, uh, was uh, made performance with. Mick Jagger and others. So it took outsiders to tell us our important stories as well. But you're absolutely right about it. It is confronting, but brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And you wrote about that. You should tell people about that scene in your essay about Jack Thompson being in an audience yeah. with you know, the star of the film, a young Jack Thompson, mm. Australia, the pride of Australia, standing up and, and actually defending the film. I was yeah. about to read that excerpt, but yeah, I'll go let you for take it. Go, 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 Dave. So at, at an early screening in Australia, a guest stood up and proclaimed, that's not us, to which Jack Thompson, the esteemed Australian actor, who as a young man co-starred in Wake in Fright, responded with equal force, sit down, mate, it is us. Made in 1970 and directed by Canadian Ted Kotcheff, the Australian-American co-production was spurned by Australian audiences at the time. People walked out of it saying, that is not us. We all thought we spoke like that, really. We didn't actually have an Australian accent. And there was none of that sort of brutality. There was none of that harshness and madness. That, of course, is very much a part of our lives. Yeah, and it's fascinating that when a mirror was shone against us, we didn't like what we saw and we pushed back against it. So notwithstanding the fact that it actually achieved international um, acclaim as a movie, we didn't like it because it didn't portray us the way we liked. And if you go through all our movies that have been successful, they've all been about Australian, portraying this specifically Australian sensibility, the red earth, the Bushman mentality, um, the easygoing ocker type, the quirky character from the suburbs. And Waking Fright was the total opposite to that. And we didn't like it. And that's why it wasn't actually, Australians never really, grew to love that movie and it didn't become a part of our cultural evolution and as Francis said it was lost for the best part of 25 years and only now is being rediscovered and 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 notwithstanding the fact that many Australians lauded it for years as being the best piece of cinema work that's been produced out of Australia and I'd certainly urge everyone with a, an opportunity to watch it it's on, it's on ABC iView now yeah. and is a is a great watch notwithstanding, notwithstanding the fact that it's confronting and really manages that um, that sort of clash of cultures between the city dwellers' urbanity, is that a word? And um, regional Australia. Yeah, it's an and, amazing film. Yeah, some critics still laud the latter as, or laud it as the, uh, the greatest Australian movie ever made. Um, film critic, uh, Trimmers, did you want to uh, provide any insight on that? <laughs> Not so much, but I'm just sort of thinking in a football context. And I think it's almost a little bit along the lines of we always, there's this sort of feeling that if something's from overseas, it's better than what we've got. Yeah, absolutely. You know I mean? and, and I've seen numerous examples where we've we've tried to go down that path and, and it hasn't worked out. I remember uh, Melbourne Knights brought out Peter Beersley, who was a wonderful player in his time. And I'm a Liverpool fan and I loved all he did. But they brought him here and he was he was well past it, but we didn't call it for what it was. Mm. You know what I mean? And we, we said somehow he's going to be this and he's going to be that. No. We had people – Melbourne Knights had better players – who were worth going to watch week in, week out at the time, who went on to great careers. They didn't need Peter Beersley for that sort of whatever 
they thought they were going to get out of it. And there was numerous examples of that. Yeah, young John Didlitzer, for example. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's the same thing. It's almost just that deference to, to yeah. well, it's from over there, so it must be better. Yeah, and we, we crave that validation. And mm. um, one of the, you know what, I'll, I'll push this, I'll, I'll drop this in now is I've got this great story, my favorite Aussie soccer story, which is John Bon Jovi. And John Bon Jovi is, you know, a rock god, a man I love. My first ever rock concert was Jovi back in 88, 89. Um, yeah, I love the guy. And there was talk he could come to watch a Melbourne derby. So it was the first season of the Melbourne Heart, Melbourne victory derbies. And the third derby that season, uh, we'd, we were on a stinker of a run. You know, we'd, we'd just, the wheels had fallen off already. But we knew Bon Jovi was coming to this game. So we're playing victory. And basically our pre-match speech was given by John Bon Jovi. And nobody <laughs> bat an eyelid. Nobody <laughs> bat an eyelid. He walked into the rooms and I said, it was like, it's like a an episode of a TV show when someone walked in and all of a sudden all silence spreads across the change room and everyone takes a knee and someone and John Bon Jovi gets up on a chair and gives this great pre-match speech and he gave this wonderful hand gesticulation of um, five fingers and then put him in a fist and said, you've got to be strong like a fist. And we all loved it and we were looking at each other going, how cool is this? Um, and then once he'd finished his little speech, we all went over and had photos and all that sort of stuff. And this is like 15 minutes before kickoff. You know, so then John Matskip then tries to deliver a pre-match talk about watching Victory's counter-attacking um, abilities and Robbie Cruz's ability to get in behind and Archie's ability to play off the shoulder of the, the, the central defence. So we're like, yeah, whatever. John Majovi's just been in here. And we probably got, we probably got flogged 3-1 and we were never in the hut. But it was a great example, again, of us just seeking. We, we, and we gave him a – actually, this is the, the funny bit is we gave him a Melbourne hard top to wear at the concert that night at Eddie had. And I was less concerned about the result than whether or not he was going to wear that Melbourne hard top at, at <laughs> Eddie he, had that did night. He, did, he wore it. He wore it. Um, I, I think a lot of people thought, what the hell is that? Is that like a is that like the um, Swans away strip or something? Did he know anything about Alex Terror? Or? <laughs> <laughs> but as you said, there, there's so many examples of that. Yeah, and I yeah. remember we were, we were always looking for that, like you said, validation from someone else or to link ourselves to something mm. that may give us credibility yeah. instead of just being who we are and being proud of who we are. I remember years ago, and, and uh, another radio station who <laughs> won't know, but there was a, a famous duo who used to have an afternoon show there. One of them's no longer with us. One's at another station now. And me and Mickey Peterson, we, they sort of did a did deal where they said, well, we'll get on and talk about NSL. And their show used to go from, say, five to seven, and they would routinely wait till like three minutes to seven before they'd put us on, and then they'd be rushing us through. And But we were so desperate that we have to be part of this yeah. that we were compromised. We didn't even say anything worthwhile. And I remember one day they gave us a little bit more time. We're in the studio. We're talking. I'm right in the middle of a sentence, and one of the hosts, who's a very famous host, there's a TV like the one up there, and it just made me think of it because the cricket's on. There's a cricket game going on in India. The Aussies are playing, right? So it's not on normal mainstream TV, so no one really knows what's going on. He interrupts me mid-sentence to say, oh, wicket's fallen. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And it just, it's all that stuff. Yeah. What we should have done then was never go back yeah. and say, no, we'll, no, we don't need this. But there's so many examples where we keep doing it and we kept doing it. Mm -hmm. And in your chapters, John, you touch on the fact that uh, Dalai Lama is in fact a Collingwood supporter. Uh, Bjorn Borg and Abba are huge Collingwood fans and uh, Samuel L. Jackson apparently follows the Saints and David Hasselhoff goes for the Swans. And I do think that uh, the weirdest one, well, there are a couple of really weird ones. General Norman Schwarzkopf came to, <laughs> to a Collingwood game, the guy that blew up Iraq in 1990, so they got him in there. Abba famously photographed in uh, Carlson yeah. Jumpers for Abba the movie. Um, that completely... 
constant need for validation. It's an interesting contrast. So, for instance, we'll, we'll, we're talking football here, but let's talk Aussie rules as, as an extension of that. So Australian rules football is an Indigenous game, and in that sense should be comfortable with its place in the world as being an Australian game. But because we're, our wider culture is not comfortable with our own Australianness, and we're constantly, as John and Paul and you've talked about, needing to compare and contrast our value only on, in the currency of others, so how others see us and how others portray us, Australian rules football needs to prove itself to the world. It just does. It can't help itself. And it, it has to have an All-Australian team. It has to play games offshore. One of the weirdest things I've ever seen was being in Nelspruit during the 2012 World Cup. Was it 2012? 2010 World Cup, sorry. And uh, the game against uh, against Serbia. And um, out the front, there were people from the AFL bouncing balls to the AFL South Africa uh, team. The, 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 the I remember promoter, it clearly, remember yeah, I remember it. It was yeah. nuts. It was like, what are you doing? <laughs> so they had to constantly, constantly prove themselves yeah. to the world. And I think the difference is, and I'll give the compare and contrast here, as, as someone from an Irish culture, an Irish background, the GAA, the Gaelic Athletics Association, the, the, the key body for Irish sports mm-hmm. and Irish culture, um, doesn't do that. It is very much rooted in maintaining a culture because I think – the Irish experience is one where they are certain of who they are, what their history is, the sacrifices that were having to be made to, to have an Irish national state and also the struggles that remain and are still there. And therefore, there is no attempt, even though that the, the Gaelic football or Gaelic sports never consider themselves or never have to compare and contrast themselves as being the best in the world. No, it just is. So, you know, you and this is why guys like Ty Kennelly and others who've come and played Australian rules football go home because it's so much more important to them to play at home in their in their own games, representing a culture that they value regardless of what other people think of them in a sport that is quite happy to just be what it is. Mm. Because Irishness and Celtic identity is rooted in something real. It's difficult. It's bloody. It's it's tragic. But they confront it. And I think in Australia, we're still running away from our real identity. We still haven't had the hard conversations about what it means to be Australian. We still haven't come to terms with what we've done in terms of our relationship with our Indigenous people. And until we take that step and have really hard conversations about what Australia really is, how it came to be, what it means to be Australian, what the cost of that has been to other communities and people – we're not, we haven't got the courage to do it yet. We still have to look offshore for validation because looking over our shoulder and looking back and having a hard conversation about our, our, the truth of who we are, good and bad, still too difficult for too mm. many people. And that, that's really the value of football, is that football has the ability for us to build that identity through who we are today because it's such a diverse, disparate sport. It's part of a global architecture Football can actually lead the way by having this aggressive Australianness that Paul Keating used to talk about, but we've always opted not to. Mm. We've always defaulted to this cringe or this need for external validation when we could actually, as a sport, be an example and set what it means to genuinely be Australian. And that's an opportunity lost. Or we can get Cristiano Ronaldo kicking a Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the funny thing in that space is if you look at a lot of the other sports that play at an international level, the Australianism of them is a real powerful yeah. thing. You look at this swimming team, you look at the netball, you look cricket. at the cricket. You, it's really an essence of, of Australia, isn't it? And mm. it's just like we haven't seemed to have been able to do that with football. It is and it's not in the way, I reckon, Paul, because what football does that those sports probably don't is that the diversity of contemporary Australia are much more representative in, in our game than it is in those other games. So I think, say, for Australian cricket, and I've been involved with that for a, a long time on and off, it's still very much rooted in a white Anglo-Saxon Celtic. Yeah, it was. It was, it was I think more from the internal when yeah. they're actually on that yeah. stage. But they're empowered. Well, the values how, that they represent, how they feel about themselves yeah. in that 
forum. Yeah, yeah. And what you're talking about a lot goes back to this whole notion of colonialism that Harp spoke about at the outset of this podcast series. This colonial anchor is at the heart of cultural cringe, yeah. and this colonial anchor makes it so hard for us to break free and be ourselves. Cricket has the luxury of having been a part of that colonial anchor. It was one of the vessels through which um, English nationalism was imbued into Australian life. So cricket can be vocal because it's actually consistent with that notion of colonialism. And we touch on that extensively in the opening podcast mm. for those who haven't heard it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Okay, now on to the Forrest Gump of Australian <laughs> football. He's with us in the studio. Now, John Didelitzer in his chapter writes, if Australian football has a character who encapsulates that sense of anonymous brilliance, it's Paul Trimboli. His style was subtle, cultural and thoughtful. He played 450 matches across 18 seasons, third on the all-time list, scored 119 goals, 10th all-time, won three championships with South Melbourne, twice won the Young Player of the Year and twice won the Johnny Warren Medal as the NSL's Player of the Year. Now, Trimboli was selected to play for Australia at all levels and played 46 full internationals, more than Robbie Slater, Frank Farina, Paul Ocon and Ned Zelich. His 16 goals are higher than the amount scored by Mark Viduca and Mark Bresciano. John? Is this explained by cultural cringe? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great case study for it because Trimmer's never got the external validation of having gone to Europe and I quote unquote succeeded as a professional in that environment. And as a consequence, his quality as a player was devalued and we could never just appreciate and admire Trimmer's for the player that he was. Carl Viert uh, will be, I think, an important absentee, replaced, though, by a very classy Paul Trimboli. Well, Trimboli's a player you always feel should be in the starting lineup. the Socceroos, whoever's available. We needed to get somebody outside of Australia to endorse the fact that he was a decent and a cultured footballer. Trimmer's, I know you're going to be incredibly embarrassed through this period, mate, so you don't have to, to speak up. Um, but he was a marvel. He was a, he was a wonderful footballer. He was a, the golden boy of Australian football before we had a golden generation. Um, yet when they named the 58 best players in Australian history and had a vote on who should be in the first 11, Trimmers wasn't even the first 58. Now, the surprising thing about it is not that he didn't make the top 58, is that nobody would have even noted that Trimmers wasn't in the top 58, notwithstanding the fact that his record objectively is as impressive as anyone who's ever put on a pair of boots in Australia. Well, doesn't that just tell you straight up that the values by which that 58 were judged were fundamentally rooted in, did they play overseas? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And if they've played overseas, then obviously they're a better player, which is entirely incorrect because Trimmers might have might have had his own reasons for not pursuing a career overseas that we might unpack a bit later. But we can't do what the guy who invented the culture cringe saying, what's his name? I forget his name. But what, what he said was this ability to be able to judge people for what they are without needing an external um, analysis. So we couldn't admire Trimmers for his ability to find little pockets of space, to be able to just roll off a defender, to be able to send the keeper the wrong way every time he was 1v1. We couldn't look at that and go, that's great. Unless he was doing that against somebody who had been, yeah, played an international game for Romania, we didn't rate it. 
Jorge Haji. A.A. Phillips uh, A. A. was his Phillips, name. Sorry, yeah. And uh, I just as I introduced, we'll leave Trimmers to last because he is perhaps the most modest person uh, in Australian football. But at the risk of falling into the cultural cringe trap, um, Trimboli's domestic uh, games record eclipses Brent Harvey and Michael Tuck's VFL-AFL records. Cam Smith's NRL record of uh, 430 games. And if we want to look at a comparable sport in basketball... Um, his record can be held up alongside someone like Andrew Gaze, who played over 600 games for the Melbourne Tigers, but the basketball community really does hold him up on a pedestal, and he's a legend of Australian sport. It is a case also that Paul played in a time when the NSL was still really strong. I mean, that period in the 90s. As, uh, Absolutely. Yeah, and so we weren't, we weren't, as a sporting community, it's sort of set outside the mainstream in a way that... Uh, even the A-League doesn't, even though the A-League's struggling for, for profile, but it doesn't sit out the side the mainstream the way that the NSL did. So lots of people didn't get to see Paul at his best because they chose not to or they, they were either intimidated or alienated from football for whatever reason. And I think it's a great shame that we didn't have the opportunity to celebrate Paul in a domestic environment. And it might have been a little bit different, but the NSL felt like for a lot of people... Uh, probably part of the cultural cringe that we weren't ready to accept football as part of our mainstream sporting diet. Uh, a lot of people didn't get to see it or, or were, were in some way hostile to it. Yeah, trimmers, no. were you that good? <laughs> nah, don't answer that, Trimmers. It's, it's a leading question. I, I'm your defence uh, defence counsel this one. He was. Objection, Your Honour. But I just want to make one point on the back of Francis first. Is I, I think you're entirely... Um, I think there's no doubt the term we've used in the past is soccer was a secret society or the NSL was a secret society. And we had our own little secret handshake in order to go to the games that you had on the weekend. And on Monday you put back on your AFL jumper or your, your green, yeah. baggy green hat, went back to school. Um, but even people from within that secret society wouldn't put trimmers up on that pedestal. You know, it's just not discussed. So if you, um, and I could be wrong in that, but when, when again, when the people who are voting for those 58 greatest Australian players of all time, um, they, none of those people thought it right to put trimmers on that list. And well, those people may have been at NSL games. You can ask Paul, though. I mean, when you were playing in that really strong era of the NSL and you were scoring lots of goals and winning championships, the players themselves would have known that the quality of football they were playing was really high. I mean, you guys would have known that you were good enough, huh? I, I believe so, absolutely. I think it's an interesting discussion because I think, as we've said, that I think the way the NSL ended yeah. didn't help us in the way – and then certain clubs – that's the one thing in football in this country that we've had clubs who don't exist anymore. And, and that always makes it hard in terms of history and, mm. and people, uh, other codes do a wonderful job of, of protecting the history and promoting that history. And there's avenues for those people and the clubs are still around and it just, it sort of gets discussed all the time. And, and it's almost like that period in Australian football, which has been talked about a lot, the transition from the NSL to the A-League and it coincided with the World Cup appearance after 32 years and it's almost as though those things are so easy to talk about and so exciting to talk about that that becomes kind of everything that there was and it's almost like the other stuff's kind of well we haven't got time to talk about that and we don't really know a lot about it so we'll just leave it where it is mm. uh, so I think the timing of it at the back end probably didn't help We had an interesting chat off air tell us why you never played overseas yeah, It's a good question and, and uh, a lot of people ask me that question and, and I'm not sure I even know the answer myself. I think it was when I was playing and I was young and I was going through the the ranks as you do and you're getting opportunities and you're starting to play in the first grade and then you're starting to be a regular, then you're starting to be successful, then national team appearances. And I was on this trajectory where I probably thought at some point, because everyone sort of said, you know, you'll get that opportunity and that might be the next phase of your career, but it, it never really came 
for me. And I didn't, I didn't really chase it either. It wasn't the be all and end all for me. I mean, uh, from a family perspective, I was really encouraged by my parents to school was important. Education was important. And I always thought, you know, there'd be time for that next phase, but I wanted to, cause you got to understand when I was playing, uh, it was, it was semi-pro. And so everybody was working, studying. Uh, there was very few people who were playing full time. And also the avenues to get overseas, they weren't as open and obvious as they are now. And um, so in that space, it wasn't like there was an opportunity every second week and I kept knocking them back. It was like, uh, you know, it may come, it may come. People talked about it. And I think I wasn't prepared to, I was having such a good time on and off the field. And I wasn't prepared to give all that up on something that was so kind of uncertain and so mysterious and will it work, won't it work? I don't really know. Nothing's concrete. I, I don't know whether I was prepared to do it at the time. And maybe by waiting to see something that was going to be like that, I maybe missed that opportunity. Um, I did go, I remember when I was young, I got an opportunity. Uh, weirdly enough, I got a phone call. Uh, Graham Souness was managing Glasgow Rangers at the time. And he rang my home phone. And I thought, this is one of the boys taking the piss. <laughs> and they had some issue back then. They had some injuries. And he was talking about they wanted to sign me and bring me over. But I was in the middle of my studies and it was the, I was in season with South Melbourne. I said, well, I can't just drop everything. And in hindsight, a lot of people probably would have just done yeah. that. But I think I probably had this sense of well, commitment to my family and my studies and a commitment to South Melbourne. And not that I felt like I was missing anything, but it was just the timing wasn't right. So I sort of said, ah, oh, look, it's, it's not right. I'm on the verge of the national team. I'm doing what I'm doing. So, okay. And then the next year they asked me to come over and spend some time trialing. So I went over and that was the following year. And I spent probably a, a month or, or more there. And, um, and it was an interesting insight because I was probably 20 years old at the time and, and they were quite a high profile squad at the time. Some, you know, big name. Won players. nine titles in a row during that phase. Of yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. And, uh, he was, there's no more high profile manager at the time than him. And, you know, some of the players that were playing there, they had the England internationals who'd just sort of been at the 1990 world mm. cup, Terry Butcher, Gary Stephen, Trevor Stephen, that sort of team and um big scottish players too you know ali mccoy was in there Mo morris johnson had just come in then and and um it was interesting i was staying at the hotel and uh i was there because i was there for the trial period and they just signed a dutch winger and we were both in a hotel and we were getting taxis to and from training and then mark hately the striker yeah turned up from ac milan and so they were saying oh look you guys make sure you get together and, and look after each other and get to training and he had a car and he said don't worry about the cabs boys i'm driving <laughs> meet me down in the lobby so we got down to the lobby i'm looking around and i'm clearly the youngest of the three and he's got a 911 Porsche. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever tried to get three people in a 911 Porsche, but I have to get in the back and there is no back. Right? So I'm in the back and my head's wedged against the window and the seats are back. Cause he's a big lad, Mark Haley too, by the way. I don't know if you and he's hooning down the freeway to get the train. And I'm in the back wedged in like that for like 20 minutes trying to get the training. And I'm thinking, this is just ridiculous. <laughs> and, so, and anyway, then I'm thinking, they've invited me. They know all about me. Soonest rang me last year. And we had a friendly game. It was against a team called Queen's Park. And yeah, I remember the, famous... the second half, I was yeah. getting ready to come yeah. on as a sub. And Walter Smith, who ended up managing the men, went to manage Everton, I think, afterwards. He yeah. was the assistant manager, right? So I'm excited. I'm about to play. Got all the kit on, side of the pitch. And talk about deflating. Just before I'm about to go on, he goes to me, all right, you ready, lad? And he goes, okay, yeah, yeah. And he goes, 
what position do you play? <laughs> <laughs> and if I had said left back, he would have put me on a left back. And I just sort of, I said, this is probably not going to be as easy as I anticipated. <laughs> and the last part, I remember I was actually there when the season started. And back in those days, the senior team would play at home and the reserves would play away, but on the same day. So the seniors were playing Dunfermline at Ibrox. And so we were on the bus and I'm with the reserves. We've gone out to play Dunfermline. And initially there was some confusion about whether I'd be able to play or not because of clearances and stuff. But then it got to the fact I was able to play. Beautiful. So I'm in the starting line. I've got the kit on. We're in the tunnel going out. And the, I'm the loudspeaker. And I'm thinking, this is pretty cool. You know, We get there. We're walking out on the pitch. And they're going through the team lineup. And they're going, number six, Francis Leach. Number seven, John DeLitzer. Number eight, Trialist. Everybody's everybody's gonna be looking at me. Like, <laughs> you could have said you're Brazilian, that's your one name. Trialist. Yeah. So <laughs> but we won the game and then we had a good bus ride back into Glasgow. But then uh and, and it just I don't know, I, I probably wasn't quite ready. It was a it was a big environment, a lot of big name players. They were really good to me. And then in the end, I probably decided I wasn't ready for it. And then at the time, Eddie Thompson actually got on the phone and there was a Socceroos had a uh, tour to South Korea coming up. And in the end, I opted to to leave there. They they weren't ready to offer me a contract at the time anyway. They were happy for me to stay a bit longer, but it probably wasn't going to work out. And then I ended up rejoining the Socceroos. But it was, uh, yeah, there was some funny stories that came out of it. When you were with in those national team camps, trimmers, did you feel the equal of those players that had gone to Europe and done well? Did you feel you could compete with those guys um, as equals? I always felt pretty uh, pretty comfortable in, my, in in myself. I think the one thing that I probably wasn't was I wasn't a very uh, I wasn't aggressive. Or I wasn't a loud type of person. I, I I was one of those people that liked to just my play would talk for me. And I remember at times I'd often hear through sec, uh, other parties that the coach would say, you know, say a particular player didn't get picked or he got taken out of the team, then he'd be bashing on the manager's door and he'd be demanding answers and he'd be saying, I need to be in the first 11 and all that kind of stuff. That wasn't me, you know what I mean? And then when I got the sense that I, I don't know if I particularly respected a coach who, who wanted someone to do that anyway, it was like, well, I'm showing you what I've got. If it's, if it's enough, it's enough. If it's not, I'm not for you. And so I always had that kind of, particularly through the Eddie Thompson era, I always had that kind of up and down where at times he really invested in me and played me. And other times I was on the, on the peripheral of the team. And yeah, so it was always challenging, but I always thought that when I played, I was, you know, I would hold my own. Or I would, yeah. Yeah. What about the players themselves at that time? And, you know, uh, John spoke about before and you spoke about it too, Trimmers. And so the Australian cricket team have a really strong sense of what they represent when they play and what their image of being an Australian cricketer is. Was there a sense of what being an Australian footballer meant when you wore a Socceroos shirt, even the ugly ones with the coke written on it? Was there, a, was there a sense of that or was it something that because football hadn't defined itself with an Australian character at that stage that it didn't exist? How did you guys approach that? Yeah, it's interesting. I think what we always had, we always had a really good spirit and a really good bond because we always sensed that, especially in that period, we were underdogs a lot of the time. And as you said, we lived through an era where we'd go and play at Olympic Park against Chile and there'd be more Chilean supporters than Socceroos supporters. I remember when Croatia came to town when they first formed after the... Yeah, I apologise in advance for abusing <laughs> you on that night, Trimmers. A crowd of just under 12,000 came to Olympic Park to witness Croatia's first match since being readmitted to FIFA. <laughs> we always had a really good bond within the group. I think one of the things I found quite challenging was that style of play for me mm. was difficult because I spent such a long time at a club where I was integral to the style of play and it was a, a certain style of play. And then I'd go with the national team and maybe my position in its certain way I'd 
created it at South Melbourne with the coaches that allowed me to do that. I didn't have that in the national team. There was almost like a structure and a way of playing that it was almost, where do I fit in this? And I'd be looking for things and the other players aren't because that was the one thing I've always said about the national team is some countries, they just all grow up with the same mentality about the game. And I've often said we were in a national team at the time where it felt like you'd watch the game and you go, felt like we all met each other on the bus on the way to the ground because <laughs> one person didn't know what the next person was doing because we didn't really have that identity or this is the way we play. You know also, I mean? ju- just for people that aren't aware, to break that down further, so South Melbourne, you played mm. as an attacking midfielder, number mm. 10, um, very attacking style mm. of football where the Socceroos, was it more of a yeah, pragmatic yeah. And style? I, exactly. And I, especially during that era, I think when we see that AC Milan game, if you see the setup, it's five at the back, it's four in midfield. You were the lone ranger, I heard exactly. the commentators and, and, and the that the really didn't suit my <laughs> style at all. And Paul Trimboli like, playing solo up front. Because <laughs> yeah. no. I, I wasn't particularly physically gifted, so that's why the comparison with Forrest Gump made me... <laughs> I wish I could have run like run, that. Run, run. But that, that sort of didn't help me either, I don't think, because the team, it was almost – and not that I had expected the team to be set up to suit me, but the positions that certain coaches had in there weren't really geared towards but my strength. There's a pattern developing here, and it's represented in the way the AC Milan game played, played itself out and the stories you've told about how ad hoc things are. The Australian football was sort of like, you know, scrabbling from one moment to the next just to get to – uh, some place of cer- security or certainty. So there wasn't any sort of long-term or strategic thinking that was going on uh, at a national level around what the game should be and, and at a deeper level what the game should represent and what it should mean to people. Yeah. And I think during that during that era in particular, and even to this day, we're always waiting for this rainmaker. Like if you if you track yeah. our if you track our history, like uh, Venables is here, great, we're going to do it. All right, sorry, missed out. All right, Harry's, we've got Harry Kuehl now, great. Let's wait for Harry to come back to the A-League and it'll all be great. Okay, great. We've now got Frank Lowy's on board. Brilliant. He's going to solve everyone's problems. All right, Tim Cowell's back in the A-League. Brilliant. So there's always this rainmaker mentality. Gus where we're not actually. Gus, Gus was the other one, yeah. Gus is back. Well, he sort of achieved it. But, you know, what I mean? there was always, there's always this rainmaker mentality. I think even back in those days, oh, AC Milan's coming great. That'll solve, that'll solve all our problems. I want to move on to Ange Postacoglu. And just like cultural cringe, mm. his shock resignation on the eve of the 2018 World Cup can be difficult to explain. But, John, you've drawn the parallel between the two in your chapter. Uh, to quote your writing, as shockingly surreal as the decision seemed, the seeds of Postacoglu's decision were in truth planted over a century ago. And you've also drawn a parallel with Prime Minister or former Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating um, in terms of the notion of being aggressively Australian. i tell you this. When I was told about I didn't learn respect at school, I tell you, I learned one thing. I learned about self-respect and self-regard for Australia. Not about some cultural cringe to a country, to a country which decided not to defend the Malaysian Peninsula, not to worry about Singapore, not to give us our troops back to keep, to keep ourselves free from Japanese domination. This was the country. This was the country that you people wedded yourself to. And even as they walked out on you and joined the common market, even as they walked out on you and joined the common market, you were still looking for your MBEs and your knighthoods and all the rest of the regalia that come with it. You would take Australia right back down the time tunnel to the cultural cringe where you've always come from. You can go back to your 50s, to your nostalgia, to your Menzies, the Caseys and the whole lot. They were not aggressively Australian. They were not aggressively proud of our culture. And we'll have no bar of you or your sterile ideology. Can you just expand on these themes? 
Yeah, I, I think in reading Angie's book, a lot of these themes come out, not necessarily in the context of a cultural cringe, but his ambition for what our national team should have been, which is to break that glass ceiling that we impose on ourselves. Um, he's got this great line from his book where he says, until now, the country has done what it thought its parents, Great Britain and the Commonwealth, wanted it to do. I see the role of the national team as integral to changing that mentality. And I think that's what Ange wanted us to do. He didn't want us just to be a participant at World Cups. He didn't want us just to be one of the 32 teams. He wanted us to go there and challenge, not to necessarily win, but to go to those events, those global events, and show everybody what it meant to be aggressively Australian. What are the traits inherent to our people or who are the, what are the traits we see in ourselves or we want the world to see and go there and, and take people on on the front foot aggressively and do our best to win the tournament? I love coaching Australian players. Um, I often said to them that uh, when you make a choice in this country um, to play football and that's going to be your dream, you, you, you're choosing to take the hardest possible road. And it takes enormous courage, and um, that's why I love coaching Australian players. Uh, they've shown that in uh, bucket loads over the last four years. I've challenged them in many different ways, and they've never, never ever taken a backward step or any hesitation in in, in doing what um, I was asking of them. It's been, like I said, the greatest privilege for me to coach our best players. Now he would rather go there with a chance of winning than just qualifying. That wasn't enough, you know, to just sneak in as a 32-place team that didn't satisfy his objective. What he wanted to do was go there and take it to Brazil and take it to the Dutch and take it to whichever team we were up against. And that's something that wasn't shared by the football politic in Australia, both the bureaucracy who didn't have that mindset and a lot of our the commentariat who thought, okay, don't toy with this. We need to make the World Cup and that's it. And that's the end of your job, mate. Don't worry about this other stuff. You're here to make the World Cup, tick that box, and then we move on. But that sits totally opposite to what Ange had set out to do as a football coach, which is change the game. And I don't mean change the way it's played, although he did that, but change what football meant to Australia and to Australians. And that was the title of his book, Changing the Game. And I mean, a lot of people were saying there was a lot of pushback uh, from punters as well. Yeah. Look at where our players are playing. They can't, well, they're not the, capable of yeah, doing and that. that was... And then fast forward three or four months, we appoint Bert van Marwijk, a very pragmatic coach, and we go to the World Cup, we have a few honourable losses, and we move on. Yeah, look, there was a brief shining moment there. after You remember that, that Ange was appointed after Hol Garcia had uh, a couple of terrible results. Straight sets. Yeah, against six love, six love. Six love. Scheduling. Against France and Greece to those two friendlies. Brazil back and back France. Yeah, that was just brutal. Six, <laughs> six love, six love out in a bunch of bagels. Um, and, but there was a brief shining moment there where Ange did do exactly what he said he would do. So from that period of time, I think it was a 14-month period of time from his appointment to taking a team to the World Cup. And the team he took to the World Cup was one which was stacked full of players who'd had at least some A-League DNA in them. Like there were players in that team, Adam Taggart, others who could never imagine would have been selected uh, in a, a Socceroos team by another or an international coach. It just wouldn't have mm. been considered. Matty McKay. Yeah. All these guys played at the World Cup. Yep. And they were competitive. Wilkinson. They were, yeah, Alex Wilkinson, you know, had a great Matthew World Matthew Yep. The, the list goes on and on. 
and they were really competitive and they shocked the life out of the Dutch. They gave Chile a, a, a massive fright. The game against Spain wasn't, you know, they probably ran out of gas, but they they, they did what he promised mm-hmm. they would do. And it was exhilarating. It was unbelievably exciting. And I thought at that point that maybe we'd achieved that breakthrough that we were talking about, that a, a, a brand of football that was distinctly Australian, was unapologetic, was proud of where it came from and where it sat in the world and was, and was um, you know, un- unashamedly ambitious that we can win. But then the cultural cringe got hold of it again. And the, the flip side of that was the result in Yokohama when we failed to – I mean, in Tokyo, when we and I was there that night, we failed to qualify in that final – I think it carried Japan. through the 2015 Asian Cup win. Yeah. Like, just to yep, finish off that thought there, Francis, I think the 2015 Asian Cup campaign was a carry-on from that 2014 mentality. And I think then fast forward, once the outcome started looking brittle – that's when the cringe factor kicked in, where people started saying, well, maybe we're not, you know, maybe we, this is our pre, preordained station in life. Let's just stick to that. Yeah, well, the lot, that night in, in, in Tokyo when we didn't qualify yeah. automatically for the World Cup and uh, we, you know, the, the criticism that came Ange's way was fast, it was furious. It had been building a bit over time. Yeah. How dare you play that brand of football? How dare you go out there and play like you should expect to win in Japan? We are. This is not what Australian football is. We need to be pragmatic. We need to just get a result. Uh, it's all about making the World Cup, and you've put it at jeopardy. And I'm, you know, as, as a I'm a, an Ange disciple, you know, deep in my heart because I just love his approach to football and his vision of what Australia should yeah. be. It was really, really sad, and I, I felt it that night. It was also a dis- disappointing night and a desperately sad night for many other reasons because the day Mike Cockrell also passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just felt like at that point it was over, but we didn't have the courage to see through that vision. That we, we not Ange, I don't blame him at all. I, you know, Ange might have his, and Trimmers knows him better than most, uh, have his own, you know, it might be difficult to deal with in different ways. But as a football visionary, that was the vision that I, I, I bought in whole and I was 100% on board. And I, and I didn't enjoy the next World Cup experience at all. And it was felt empty and a little bit – it just felt like we were there doing what we'd always done. Making up the numbers. happy to be there. And after the, the taste I'd had mm. of it, uh, in 2016 with Gus, uh, Gus, but also with Ange, with, a, with an Australian flavour, um, it felt empty. It felt really empty. And I don't know how we get back there, Paul, but I think that – you know, that template's been set by Ange and the fact that he went on and, and became a successful coach in the J-League the way he has and proved all his critics wrong that he could take a team that was bottom of the pile and turn them into champions the way that he did in a really competitive league, um, you know, uh, you know, made my heart sing with pride because, because of what he's done. But how do we get that? Is there any chance we can get back to a point where that vision can be once again reignited and we can play the way that represents a true Australian approach? Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see. Obviously, now with an Australian coach, perhaps we have that opportunity. I think it's interesting what you said about the 2018 World Cup because I was actually watching it offshore. Yep. And what I find interesting when you're not in Australia watching, then I get a sense of how the world's seeing us as a team. And the one thing that was almost uh, – it was deafening in the silence was they weren't even talking about Australia. Yeah. Like It was almost like we weren't a factor. They didn't say, yeah, they lost their games, but, gee, they had this or they had this player or they had that game. They kind of just dismissed us as if we weren't even part of the whole thing. In 2018. In 2018, yeah, yeah mm. which I thought was was really interesting based on what you said before about we'd seem to make an impact at previous ones. We absolutely made an impact in 
2014, mm. and obviously we did in, in 2006, but, mm. you know, we didn't get a point in 2014, but people spoke about mm. us. It was exciting. It was exhilarating. Mm. I mean, yeah, Tim Cahill's goal, but even beyond that, mm. the Ch- we had the Chileans on the ropes. Mm. We had Holland on the ropes. And, and it's interesting. I mean, obviously I've got to put a disclaimer because I'm very close with Ange, have been since I was very young. So uh, obviously I'm always going to bat for him. But I think that's one thing I remember because I played with Ange and then he finished his career early as a player, but he was always a real student of the game, immersed himself in the game. He was like 24-7 and he became a coach and I played under him. And I remember certain things that stick in your mind that he would always repeat his mantras. And one of them was don't accept things. Don't accept things. Don't accept that your teammate is at that standard. Don't accept what they're putting limits on you. Don't ex- and, and if you've watched his career, you've seen that he's ref- he lives that. He doesn't yeah. put limits on himself. And he coached at South Melbourne, which in the context, you had to play a certain way and you had to win. And he achieved that. And then he went with the young Socceroos and he saw the world and he saw what was capable. And, and then all of a sudden you see what he did at Brisbane Roar. And I said, he, he melded that, um, not just winning, but winning with style, style and substance. And it was incredible. I don't think we've seen an A-League team with that, that not, style. Not, not, even, just, not even close. Jones. Not even close. It was and revolutionary. Then, and yes, okay, then he moved on in the national team and the way it ended. But then you see in Yokohama and what he's done there. And people say, yeah, but look at the next year. And I go, don't worry about the next year. He achieved, a lot of people never get to mm. achieve anything. He's won at every level. He's won at international. He's won at club level international. He's won local. And he's always done it with a style. And I think that's – people underestimate how yeah. difficult that is. You look at the, the situation now, language barriers, cultural barriers, all that, and he's done what he's done. So I think yeah, he, it's been an incredible ride for him. And, and I, yeah. I think he gave us a pride in, in the team. Yeah, and I think his football – Sorry, any team that he's been yeah. – as a fan of that team, whether yep. it's national team or club team yep. – you are proud of that team. Because it's people a- still talk about right. sorry, Raw Salona, don't they? Yeah. yeah. Yokohama yeah. fans, their minds are blown by what he's done there. Yeah. It's that sort of because it's with the soccer anchored in his great Cup. values. That's anchored the way he plays football is anchored in how you want to perceive yourself, which is aesthetically pleasing, strong, never give up, resilient. And that's what we see in ourselves, and that's the way he wants to play his football. And that's the I won't use the word tragedy in this context, but that's the disappointment of his tenure is that that vision wasn't backed and it should have been backed because we'd seen it play out before our very eyes so many times. It's just believe in this guy and he will actually help us transcend the glass ceiling that we've set for ourselves. And this glass ceiling is something that, um, permeates through all of Australian culture. So he's taking on a, he's biting a very big, something of very, he's biting off something very big in order to change his mindset. Cause it's not just changing away playing football. He's changing the mindset of an entire nation. And that's a, that's a big undertaking, but he was the person to do it. And unfortunately I think when he resigned and I've never discussed this with him, so I haven't got, you know, I'm not speaking with any insight on this other than my own. Um, he wanted to be judged against, okay, this is what I want to be judged against. Not about whether I qualify for the World Cup or whether I become 32nd or whatever. I want to be judged against, did I make a material difference to the way this country perceives its football? And nobody judged him by that. They were too worried about whether or not, you know, we were playing 3-5-2 or 3 four, whatever it was. You know, and that was a disappointing thing for him. He doesn't mind criticism. I reckon he loves criticism, but he wanted to be crit- critiqued against yep. this really aspirational benchmark. And because that discussion, that conversation wasn't happening and nobody actually framed it in those terms, I think he just got disillusioned. Absolutely. And and I think in the end, people were worried about us missing the World Cup for the wrong reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Edge would have been prepared to miss the World Cup but make a leap mm. 
elsewhere and say, you know what, a football nation can miss a World Cup, but if you're a proper football nation, you understand the game, mm. yeah, we'll get there the next time because we're, we're yeah. building something here. That's you know? right. It's yeah. not all about just, as you said, making it. Yeah, ticking the box. All right, we've got to wrap it up, boys, but I uh, want to get a final word from each of you on cultural cringe, uh, starting with John Didelitzer. I hope we never play AC Milan at Princess Park again. <laughs> That's number one. I think number two, I'd love us to be able to appreciate our players for who they are and what they do. And finally, I think the way the exit of Ange says a lot about the immaturity of our game culturally and our need to really lock down what our identity is as a sport. Trivia question. Who was the sponsor of the AC Milan Socceroo series? Oh, Socceroos was sponsored by Coke. Optus, David. Optus. Very good. There they were. Back Optus. when Optus Vision. Optus Vision. Were they cable TV? They just said Optus. I think Optus Vision was a few years later. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll double check that one. Over to you, Francis. Uh, for, for me, football still represents in many ways our best hope for a sophisticated understanding of the wider Australian culture. It represents the very best of our diverse uh, and rich history and story. Um, and that's what I think keeps a lot of us in the game because it, there is no sport in Australia that does have that breadth of, of experience of all walks of life that come together to speak one language with the ball, and that's why we love it. So I, I still ha- hold out hope, despite all the administrative heartache and the struggles with the A-League and everything else, that I'm still very much invested in it. I'm, As I've said to you, and I think I mentioned it, until we come to terms with the truth of our history, we'll never get over our cultural cringe. Uh, and that's a long walk. And there are some great people trying to take us on that journey. Uh, and there's still a long way to go. We make a couple of steps forward and we go a couple of steps back when we, when, we, uh, when we try to come to terms with our true history. But I do believe eventually, you know, maybe not in our lifetime and not in my lifetime, that we'll come to a true understanding of that. But when we do that, we'll open up opportunities that, for us to be more certain in the world in a way that uh, we haven't been. So that's you know, that's the long walk that we're on that will be reflected in a change of attitude or what it means to be Australian. But I think football has a role to play in that, particularly for those people who've come from other countries who've made Australia their home, but football still remains their game. Yeah, powerful stuff. And last but not least, the Forrest Gump of Australian football, <laughs> Paul Trimboli. Well, obviously, I can't compete with these learned uh, colleagues of mine. I've been impressed. Just got to say, life's like a box of chocolates. The same thing. I think it's just... We need to believe in ourselves and we need to believe that that our IP in football, our knowledge, our passion, we're the equal. We can compete. And let's not just defer it's from overseas, it's better. They're from this country who's got more history. They're better. No, they're not. We've got to judge things as they should be, not preconceived ideas. We've got plenty of people, plenty of players in this country. We need to believe and, and back ourselves to compete at that level. And I think, as we were saying, I think that's what Ange was really trying to get people to believe. Thanks for joining us on this latest episode of the Football Belong series. Thanks to our guests and we'll be back again very soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.